Is it still possible today to live an intellectual life in its full profundity? And if this is possible, then how could it be achieved? In today's episode of Eclectic Intellection, I will discuss these questions with my guest, Zena Hitz. As I usually do, let me begin with a very brief introduction. Uh, Zena Hitz completed her PhD in Ancient Philosophy at uh, Princeton University. She then taught at uh, various universities. She also spent three years living and working in the Madonna House Apostolate, a Catholic community in Comermere, Ontario. Since 2015, she has worked as a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, today we are going to discuss her book, which is titled Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. The book was published by Princeton University Press uh, very recently. Okay, I'll stop there with the brief introduction. Zina Hitz, welcome to the podcast. Could you complete the introduction by expanding on, on the above and um, telling us more about your intellectual background and journey? Uh, thanks so much, and it's it's great to be on the podcast. Um, well, I... I'll tell you a bit about how I came to write the book, which I think tells a lot of the a lot of the story that you're that you're asking about. I grew up, you know, the child of uh, bookworms, and this younger sister of an older bookworm, and uh, you know, we no one was a professor, no one was academic, but we liked to read and we liked to think and we liked to argue. And uh, so, you know, when I became a teenager and was thinking about going away to to college. I decided I, I I fell in love with this place St. John's, which is where I teach now. It was a very distinctive, intense intellectual culture. Uh, I went off. Uh, my parents totally understood why I would want to study uh, old books. Uh, there was no question about whether it was going to be, help me get ahead in the world or anything like that. And uh, then I went on to graduate school in uh, in ancient philosophy, and um, through some strange chances, ended up in very very uh, competitive uh, elite departments. Um, which in a way was wonderful. That is, I learned a lot. I got to do, I learned how to do my work at a very high level. Uh, on the other hand, there was this uh, spirit of competition uh, and status mongering that infected me uh, from the environment, although it was something in me, I think, to begin with. And uh, I found that it, over time, sort of sucked the life out of what I was doing. I felt, on the one hand, um, uh, an urge to do something really practical and that would actually help people. I felt uh, disconnected from my earlier intellectual endeavors, but I somehow couldn't, even though I wanted to do something helpful, I couldn't quite imagine giving up being an intellectual or, you know, giving up books and ideas. So I tried various ways of imagining how to do it in a way that would be satisfying and I, I failed. So I, I ended up leaving the profession and uh, going to this community, and uh, which was a wonderful place. I, I recommend it to everybody. But I couldn't really do any intellectual uh, work there. I could read books, um, but I couldn't study. I uh, didn't have time to write. I didn't have many people to talk to. I had some, but not many. So I had to really think intensely about what it was and how it matters. And um, 
when I came out, I discerned out of the community and in, you know, came back to the U.S. Uh, it was in Canada, the, the community. And I found that higher education was in all this tumult because the, the humanities were in decline and all the magazines were full of essays about it. And I, I didn't like any of the essays. I thought they were all too narrow. I decided to write something myself. I wrote a short essay on what I thought really mattered, which is that learning matters for its own sake. It matters because it's a part of your happiness. Uh, I thought a little bit about what that might mean. Um, the essay got picked up and did well, and uh, a publisher contacted me about a book, and so I wrote this book. And, uh, and then here we are talking about it on your podcast. So <laughs> I'm sure you want some details filled in. Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to m- maybe uh, begin by talking a little bit about what's at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how would you describe the stakes here? Well, uh I think it depends on what perspective you're looking at the stakes. There's stakes for an individual and there's stakes for us human beings at this historical moment. Um, I think, to be honest, uh, one of the things that I would say is at stake right now, this is actually not, this is something in my thinking that's developed a bit since the book. Um, But part of what's at stake is do we individual people nurture the resources in ourselves? Uh, on the one hand, to endure various catastrophes that might befall us. So when we think about education in the contemporary parlance, we're thinking, oh, I can I can learn how to serve in the economy, to serve in the community. But what happens when the economy collapses? What happens when the role you envision in the community disappears? What do you have to rely on? Um, one of the things intellectual life can do is give you a set of resources to endure in a variety of circumstances. Now, another thing it can do is, uh, this is the part that's newer because it's a bit more political than my uh, focus in the book. It can help you to have a resource for learning in yourself. That is, it can teach you to act, to get in touch with the questions that you have that are fundamental and to train yourself to recognize what feel to you like answers to them. And that, I think, makes you something like a free person. That is not someone who's passively receiving information, um, which is often in someone's interest, uh, but it, it helps to build a community of thoughtful individuals who can are self-determining, who can make their own judgments and make their own decisions. So I think that's also at stake. I think actually the stakes are very high. I think they're higher than I thought they were when I started writing. So, so there's a sense of a, a kind of a personal resilience that's at the core of this. There, there's a sense of strength that comes from uh, an intellectual life well lived. Yes, I think that's right. Um, not just resilience, although there are many stories of re- resilience. So in the book, I talk a lot there's many wonderful stories about people in terrible circumstances, you know, in prisons, uh, in um, Soviet camps in Siberia, in one place or another that's where you're really deprived of almost anything. There are stories of people like that who find in their minds resources that they need to, to survive and to, to find their dignity in. There's also many stories that I dug up of people from working class backgrounds whose environments were were, very, were experienced as very diminishing, but find in books or in studying uh, a world where they are, they see somehow their true worth, their dignity as thinkers and understanders and contemplators. So 
that's definitely a big part of what's at stake. So I'd like to read a quote from page 94, uh, and and then we could uh, perhaps unpack it. So here's the quote you say here. Perhaps we ought to think of intellectual life as having not so much an object as a direction toward the general past the specific, the universal beyond the particular, the reality behind the illusion, the beauty beneath the ugliness, the peace underneath violence. We seek the pattern in instances, the instance hidden by the pattern. <laughs> so by the way, that's a, that's a beautiful uh, sentence there. Um, but so uh, so, w- what did you mean by the contrast here between object and direction? Uh, the intellectual life is a life that seeks a kind of direction, not an object. That that's what the quote seems to be suggesting. But isn't there some type of object, or slightly more abstractly, a thing that the intellectual life is trying to capture? Well, do you, can you give us a sense of what that thing is just to help me get at the question? Well, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about this very broadly. Uh, I'm yeah. just thinking about this contrast between an object, which, which seems to me as like a thing. It could be a thought. It could be an idea. It could be a perspective, some type of object right. versus versus a direction. Um, so the quote here suggests that what we're looking for really is is not so much the object, it's more the direction. Um, so the direction doesn't necessarily give us an object, it's, it's just a path, it's it's a way uh, to get somewhere. So the, the focus there would be more on the way and the path and the road and not so much the object. So so again, it seems to me okay. that the quote... I, I, yeah. I now, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. so I, I recognize, first of all, that what I say in that sentence is a bit puzzling. Um, I find it puzzling myself because uh, I recognize what you're talking about. That is, we tend to start out an inquiry um, because there's something we want to know. <laughs> so, so say, even if it's a quite a big abstract question, say uh, something like, is there a God? Um, now, that's a question I want to know the answer to. There's a yes or there's a no and uh, at the end of it, I either know that there's a God or I don't have any evidence there's a God or there's a variety of other things I could think. Uh, so I, I don't want to deny that our thinking usually has or very often has an object-directed form to it. Um, but I'm trying to uh, account for something which seems to me a bit mysterious, which is, first of all, sometimes you don't know quite what you're looking for. Uh, so I'm thinking about in the book, I talk about uh, John Baker, who's a Essex office worker who's obsessed with peregrine falcons. And he's chasing these falcons on bicycles for 10 years and cataloging their every movement. Now, does he know what he's looking for? I'm not sure he does. Um, he, you know, what's the point of his inquiry? Well, he wants to understand the falcon. But if you, I think if you read his book about 
his uh, inquiry, you see that he's struggling with something bigger, something like what is a human being? Is a human being a part of nature? Is there something pure about nature? Could a human being approach it? But I think that regardless of whether or not he has an object or how he might attain it, it seems true that he gets somewhere. That is, I'm trying to account for the progress that we make, even when we don't actually achieve an answer to our question or even know what our question was. When I was in graduate school, I had a teacher, a wonderful man, Ian Mueller, uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, he used to teach Aristotle's metaphysics. We'd read a, a uh, we read it, Metaphysics Zeta for two years, uh, very slowly. We'd begin the class with, you know, we'd have a passage assigned. Uh, we'd look at the various commentaries, the different interpretations. And uh, Ian was an incredibly acute critic. So he could just find holes in any interpretation. So he uh, he would destroy the old-fashioned interpretation. Then we'd look at the newer interpretation. He'd destroy the newer interpretation. And the meeting would be over. Now, what's happened in that time? What happens, say, in that kind of conversation or in the conversation we see in Platonic dialogues where you have a conversation that doesn't answer a question but ends in something like perplexity? Uh, it still seems to me you make progress. And you're making progress even though uh, the goal may not be clear to you and the goal may not be in sight. I don't know how that can be, but that's, that's the kind of thing I mean. I hope that helps. I hope those examples help. Yeah, that that example is quite interesting. Um, maybe one way to flesh it out a, a little bit more in terms of the book. Um, you talk about this again on on page one forty eight uh, when you're talking about Augustine. Uh, so so let me maybe read this very brief quote as well uh, from one forty eight. You say um, Augustine's virtue of seriousness we find is of key value in our understanding of intellectual life. Intellectual life involves a direction, as suggested above. It draws us onto something more and then something more until and if we reach a point where there is no more. <laughs> so that, that's another really right. interesting quote. So what is, so maybe one way to approach this is would, would be to think about what is this point where there is no more. It kind of so sounds like a point of arrival. Um, so if we think of intellectual life broadly as a journey from A, where we are now, to B, right. then what does what does that B consist of? What does the point of arrival look like? Or is there a point of arrival? I think that's just the kind of question that I'm uh, struggling with. So I, I have these experiences in myself and uh, that I've seen in others where I, I think I can say that learning has taken place. That is, there's progress from one thing to another. Um, and But yet that progress, if you look at all the cases next to each other, it's not obvious what single thing they're all getting at. Okay, so here's two, the part that you're reading from when, in that case, which is uh, towards the end of the book, I think I was thinking especially about someone like Augustine, who has this philosophical autobiography and describes him studying all the philosophers and realizing he doesn't understand every, anything. Then he reads the Platonists and they start to make sense. And he realizes that the material world is not all there is, but there are things, causes behind the material world that, that make them what they are. And then he's stuck 
um, because uh, he needs this moment of uh, grace to to realize that it's in fact God that is uh, the ultimate cause of all of these physical things. So that's a point of arrival for Augustine. And part of what part of the reason why I'm it's difficult to articulate what I'm trying to say is that I was reluctant for the purposes of the book uh, to say that um, this is somehow the the only form of learning that is you move towards God or you haven't learned anything. What I wanted to allow for, um, whether or not it's possible, I don't know, was the other parallel example in the book. Someone like Lila Cerullo of uh, the Ferrante's Neapolitan novels who um, is always searching, always learning, um, always uh, thinking about her role in the world, always thinking about uh, struggling for self-knowledge and knowledge of her community. But from her point of view, the world is just an island floating on lava, you know, in vast stretches of empty space. So there's not going to be any God that's going to um, lie at the end of her inquiry. There are certain thinkers who might say, well, in that case, she hasn't actually learned anything or she got part of the way, but not the whole way. And uh, maybe something, I, I suppose I want to say something like you can learn in a variety of ways. You can you can recognize progress, but the endpoints might look extremely different for different people. Uh, not because there's no such thing as truth, not because there's no such thing as knowledge, just because I think probably learning is such a is such a vast and complex thing. We, our minds kind of start to to crumble a bit when we think too hard about it. But so, so then, whether this is religious or non-religious, um, you're, you're emphasizing the quest. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is where, as I was thinking about this, um, I think there's a there's a possible paradox here. Let me explain why I, I think it might be um, detected here in this case. So, if we say that the quest for truth is not a quest where we are really interested in obtaining a final, ultimate truth. Um, Let's say that really what we are interested in is the quest. Well, then that itself, reflexively, right? (laughs) That itself is a statement that appears as a kind of final truth, that the quest is uh, the goal and not the truth. That sounds like a truth. So so again, it's... I see, right. Okay. I don't think there's a paradox. I... um, the question is about what we're emphasizing in our learning. Do we emphasize collecting facts, say? Okay, so that's one of the contrasts that's in my mind. So are we collecting facts, as I did when I was a small child? I knew everything there was about whales and penguins. You're almost counting your facts as you're acquiring them. Now, what I want to say is something like, this is a certain kind of learning, but virtue of seriousness requires uh, really trying to get to the bottom of something and trying to make progress away from something superficial and competitive, away from something uh, acquisitive or practical and towards something else. So so a lot of what, a lot of the reason why this particular part of my thinking that you've put your finger on is so uh, amorphous and, and easy to criticize is because it's in a way negatively defined. I also feel that you're really onto something here because for me, when I when I read this, I always come back to this idea of efficiency, 
it seems that if we if it seems to me that if we're talking about ultimate goals and ultimate truth uh and if those things are simply delivered for instance if you could um you know read that final book uh on that quest and get that final truth uh there would be no more road to be traveled um in other words that's an efficient intellectual journey one that efficiently ends um with with a positive outcome where we get some kind of a truth it seems to me that, that that's where we would not be interested uh, anymore right that's the point yeah. where we we would finally yeah. get so so any yeah. any kind of any kind of idea that right seeks this type of uh, final point a kind of uh, you know complete efficiency leads to a sense of uh, i don't know i mean because i've never been there and so uh, <laughs> but, but I, I kind of anticipate that one would as would anything else right uh, sure. we desire good things but when we're given those good things we quickly get, get bored and i'm just uh, anticipating that if if one were delivered a final truth then one would get bored with it pretty quickly because the, there wouldn't be anything else left to do right so i uh that's that's very helpful actually so i i and i feel pulled in a couple of directions at once i i think we're pretty i i feel myself the weeds are high for me right now so um pardon me and and listeners if if i i stop making sense at some point but uh part of so part of the idea of learning being a process rather than a product is just what you're saying. That is, you're never going to be finished. It's somehow uh, learning is a process which can be indefinitely extended. And that maybe is another way of putting the point about direction. Um, and even that also helps, I think, even with the case of God, because it's it's not as if at least in my tradition, if you're a mortal human being, it's not as if once Augustine is directed at God as the end of his knowing, he suddenly has stopped learning. He's continuing to learn. <laughs> he's continuing to write. He's continuing to philosophize. He's continuing to struggle to understand. There's no end point um, except uh, one that's hypothesized, you know, after death in the beatific vision. So, I think that's one thing. But the other thing that I think is connected with the virtue of seriousness, which may be important and, and helps illuminate this question, is that I contrast the virtue of seriousness, which is the desire to get to the bottom of things, the most important things, with uh, what Augustine calls curiositas, or what I call love of spectacles, uh, which is a kind of restless seeking after experiences and feelings, uh, one after the other. So one interesting question uh, that I hadn't thought about this directly before until this conversation is what's the difference between the ways in which curiositas or love of spectacles is unlimited and the way in which uh, seriousness is unlimited. So, you know, so take someone who loves the gladiator matches or someone who loves to acquire facts. Um, in a way, they're never satisfied. They're going to keep going to see the gladiators. They're going to keep acquiring facts. They're going to keep wanting to win bigger and bigger competitions. But they are not making progress. Uh, they are, in a way, stuck in place. So think about the desire to look at a, a car accident when you drive by, Okay. Um, you always want to do that. It's not as if once you've done it, you've seen it and you've moved somewhere. You always want to keep looking at the car accident. Uh, but it's it's not fruitful. 
it's not productive. It doesn't get you anywhere. Whereas, uh, you know, you can imagine that someone who loves learning, and, um, some one of the many examples of model learners in my book, uh, if they're serious, they're always getting further, um, even if it's still a kind of unlimited progress. They're always getting deeper. They're always getting to more. Um, they're always getting into greater and greater complexity. You don't get that from other kinds of intellectual or perceptive exercises. There is this, uh, right, the, the, you talk about the love of spectacle, and you also bring in modern life today, uh, how much spectacle uh, is embedded in the modern life. Um, now, I, I do want to bring it back to something a little bit more practical here. You discussed this practical element as well. So if we go back to that road, um, you know, between points uh, A and B, yeah. um, the the road between points A and B, A being sort of, uh, you know, life before this quest and, and B being some point along that quest. Um, yeah. It seems to me that it's a, it's a pretty ascetic road. Uh, there's something monastic about it. There's a sense of detachment that yeah. this quest requires, uh, a, deta a detachment from the world and, and its preoccupations, uh, and a turn toward something beyond, as you say, the world of spectacle, of, of appearances, right. of right. strife, of politics. Um, right. So on this, I wanted to ask you if you've seen uh, a documentary film called um, Into Great Silence. Oh, yes, I have seen it. Yeah, you have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. A, this is an amazing. So for, so for those who haven't seen it, the film was made by Philip uh, Gruning uh, and it was released, I think, 2005 or around that that year. This man lived with a group of Carthusian monks uh, high up in in the French Alps, right? I I forget the the name of the monastery, but it's, it's Chartreuse, uh, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, right. Um, so what's interesting about this is that he asked them permission to film, uh, you know, to live with the, with the monks and to film this in 1984. Um, so he sends this in 1984 and something like 16 years later, they reply saying uh, that they're ready now. <laughs> they were not ready in 1984, but 16 years later they are. Uh, so he spent um, six months um, living with the monks. Uh, so it's a pretty long film. You know, when you watch it by the end, I'm sure you've had this experience as well. Yeah. Uh, you really feel you, you have this feeling of, of having been somewhere else. Uh, you kind of don't feel that you are in your own context uh, for a moment there. Right, uh, one, one really sort of absorbs the, the rhythm of life in this monastery. Um, but then the film ends and we're back in our own reality. So, so there's a kind of gap uh, between what we see uh, in this film um, and the possibilities offered by ordinary life. So yeah. I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you about a kind of practical element here. Is there some middle ground between a full immersion in a monastic lifestyle and our everyday lives? Um, is there some middle point where we can sort of place that intellectual life? I think that what I'm calling withdrawal from the world, withdrawal from competition, withdrawal from uh, spectacle, et cetera, from the surfaces... It's a condition that is pretty dynamic. That is, you have to be, keep fighting for it. It doesn't. It's not as if you suddenly 
uh, get there and never have to fight um, the other parts of your nature again. But it also, I think, is meant to be something that can be carried with you. That is, it's an it's an internal state more than it is a place like a monastery where you go. And I think that uh, a physical monastery, uh, like a prison cell or all the other examples, <laughs> They're very helpful because they physically remove all of the distractions and the reminders of what's around you. And I can tell you from my experience, and this is something that I think that film misses, actually. What happens when you, especially at first, when you remove, you know, all of your screens and your phone and um, your workplace and all the things that were distracting you, what you discover is that all of your anxieties and concerns and distractions were in fact coming from within you and not in fact from the outside. And it's, I think, a common experience that it takes some time uh, in an environment like that to get to something underneath, that is, to the, the emptiness that's there that was the thing that we were afraid of facing. So, but once you've done that and once you know in that way from the inside, what the structure of your experience is, then you can develop ways, I think really in any walk of life to reach into that space, that inner space of silence, the place of contemplation, the space of the intellect. It can be very difficult if, if, if your conditions are, are really bad. I think most walks of life, you can find one. And it just takes the work to uh, get a sense of what that experience is like and then to continually reconnect with it. I suppose I just so the the one thing I thought uh, should have been in the movie was, um, you know, what, what's it like inside those monks heads? You know, I think they're probably pretty trivial. So I think the monks probably thinking, geez, what's for dinner? Uh, you know, wow, there's a coffee stain on my habit, you know, or they're remembering like, oh, yeah, I remember that time in grade school when I got the highest grade in the class or the, their minds are are uh, often busy with trivial or profane thoughts. But the environment sort of clarifies that that's what they are. Broadly speaking, there's a sense of slowing down, right, of yeah. um, taking time to think uh, it, it requires discipline. So, yes. so maybe if we could unpack this just a little bit more uh, from the practical perspective, I mean, I find this fascinating. Um, you know, what kind of discipline are we talking about? Um, you know, is it uh, putting a timer on our Twitter app? <laughs> uh, is it, is it, um, is it meditation? You know, learning to stop, to be still, to listen inward, and then to ask a question and let the inward, the inward voice address, digest, um, process those questions. Um, and also, so if we if we take this moment to be still and silent, if we really slow down, and if we can develop this sort of internal dialogue, wouldn't wouldn't want want to track the development of that dialogue? In, in other words, if we sort of have these moments where we kind of enter a meditative state and we think and we sort of have this internal dialogue, but if it's a kind of ephemeral thing and it just fizzles out and we, we forget about the experience, um, isn't there something missing here? So when you talk about discipline, from my perspective, I just feel that for me, the discipline also sounds like an attempt to 
take this whole experience seriously and connect the dots. You know, one doesn't get all the answers immediately. So let, let me give you one pr- specific example. This is something that I'm deal- dealing with right now. Yeah. Um, so, so I really got back into just analog, analog technologies, more broadly speaking, like yeah. Uh, yeah. turntables with yeah, you know, yeah. vinyl. Uh, the latest thing is uh, photography. I've picked up our oh, old yeah. camera. Oh yeah, with uh, I put an old uh, you know film in there, so and I learned uh, so so I'm learning how to you know do that whole process again, oh, which, which is actually kind of yeah. difficult because nobody does that anymore. Everybody's yeah, in digital, yeah, form, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. so now so one thing that I've discovered is that so I'm looking at the photos um, that are coming out, uh, and there was one photo that I took of of my daughter, and and the photo really stands out. I mean, there's something about the composition; it just completely stands out. It's like this is the one I'm going to print and really you know, put up in our house and things like that. So now one question that has been coming back to me again and again is why did that photo stand out? Is there something like, is there something like a photographic moment? Right. Because, because when we see it, you know, we, we can recognize that moment. And I think a lot of people share that moment, but, but it's not necessarily easy to describe what that moment is, what it consists of. So now, now when I kind of pause for a few minutes at times throughout the day and think about that, I get some ideas and, and sometimes I jot them down. Other times I don't, but I feel that if I was just having these moments and not trying to connect them, I feel like I would lose something. So, so what, what do you think about that? Sorry, that's uh, a, so a I, lot of different things. But I think that's terrific. So I, I think, uh, you know, there's a there's an older book, uh, which in a way is like mine, but more of a practical manual called The Intellectual Life. Uh, it was written by a French Dominican priest in the 1920s. He's trying to help ordinary people pursue an intellectual vocation. And one of the things he says is very similar to what you're saying. He says, you have to have a project. So, you know, he says you need two hours a day. That was his model. You need two hours a day and you need to, to defend those two hours and spend those two hours working on something specific. That is, you're following on to a project that, you, that you're working on continually. I think that there that is really... Uh, a good discipline. Um, I think, you know, it's actually not something I'm good at myself. I'm the person that has uh, 10 trillion different ideas going through my head in different times. Um, I've got 20 books that are each half read. Uh, you know, I'm writing three or four things at once. Uh, so I'm very bad at that kind of continuous discipline. So I want to leave, I, I still think that I'm living some kind of intellectual life, I, I think it'd be better if I, if I had a discipline, <laughs> you get to a certain age and you start to accept, you try to accept as yourself as you are. Now, the other thing I suppose I wanted to say is that I think that even the scattered experiences of contemplation. So for me, something I've, this has happened to me more or less my whole life, even when I wasn't doing anything particularly intellectual. Um, you know, I, I find when I leave the house, if I'm getting into my car or, or leaving work, leaving the classroom, leaving my office, um, leaving a doctor's appointment, I tend to look up at the sky and look at, uh, and sort of look at whatever is going on in the natural world around me. Now that takes about 10 seconds it's not uh, a focus on anything in particular. I'm not asking a question, but it's a moment. Those moments are precious to me because I think it's it's a way in which I'm consistently being a, a sort of contemplative being, even in times when all of my disciplines are um, in you know at odds and ends for whatever reason. 
So I, anyway, I, I, I think what you're saying is absolutely right, that, that trying to stick to a question, uh, keep a journal, those are very, very good things to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what you, what you just said is also very uh, important. I mean, yeah. um, this doesn't always have to have, again, that point yeah. about efficiency, it doesn't always have to be something that, that feels yeah. like work almost. I also wanted to add this, uh, just for the benefit of our listeners. I found that the book gave me a kind of roadmap in terms of developing this discipline, what it means. Because again, I feel that what you've done in the book is sort of, if, if I was trying to do this myself, it you know, would be like sitting there every day and trying to think about what is an intellectual life. So you've kind of, you've done all of that thinking, you've put it in a book. So so the book sort of represents that that discipline. So I also wanted to ask you, we're going to run out of time very quickly here. Um, there, there has been tremendous interest, obviously, in, in this book. A lot has already been written about it. Um, you you have um, written some responses that I've seen on, on Twitter. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about reception. So um, how, how would you describe uh, the reception to your core argument in this book? Uh, I think it's been positive in uh, so I'm I'm very happy with it not because everyone's agreed with me uh, I think that the criticism I've gotten most often has is that I'm uh, too harsh on ordinary practical life and uh, the importance I'm too light on the importance of politics but I what I wanted and, and this fits with what you just said what I really wanted for the book was not to um, persuade we, we, we are faced with so many things which are trying to persuade us of something you know buy this buy that like this like that be on our team be on that team and I really wanted to write something that invited the reader to think for themselves about these questions and the response has seems to be that that's what people are doing when they're reading the book they're they're thinking they're responding they're being challenged they're getting angry um, they're inspired sometimes they're hostile other times that's exactly what I wanted uh, is just for people to spend some time thinking about this question I'll say one more thing about the reception which is that when I first started writing about this about learning for its own sake and someone wrote to me recently that reminded me of this they said it sounds like your book is saying things that you can't say <laughs> and I remembered that feeling of like oh you're not supposed to say that learning matters for its own sake and uh, what I found is actually that people a want to hear it b there's lots of other people who think this way uh, so it's been a, a wonderful way of finding a community of people like-minded people out there in the world my book is um radically egalitarian uh, in a lot of ways that's the one sort of political principle that i think it is really firm on uh, it's it's against thinking that learning is somehow this special province of special people that can't mm-hmm. be. So, so maybe one one of the implications of this is um, what you're suggesting in the book is that when we think about education when we think about the intellectual life that we need to re-inject some of these, uh, how shall I put it, uh, sort of basic ideas or some of these underlying elements that might have been put on, on the back burner, so to speak. W- would that be fair? You're trying to kind of, um, not hypercorrect, but it's an attempt to balance things, basically. Yeah, exactly. So I, what I call it, uh, I would say actually it was a rhetorical aspect of my project. So I'm, I'm trying to press very hard on places where I think uh, the general culture is pressing in the other direction. 
Mm. And, and maybe at the, at the bottom of this is a sense of individualism. It's a sense that we yeah. as humans have this ability to embark on these intellectual journeys. And these individual intellectual journeys are very important. It's essential, basically. I, I think that's right. And I think that the individual is very important. And that is part of what I think is neglected in a lot of our current thinking about conventional thinking about education. That is, you know, I try to see my students as people who come into my class with questions of their own, with a, a, a learning trajectory of their own. And then they leave my class and they take it somewhere else. And um, it's not for me to try to control their trajectory. It's for me to help them, given my own experience, uh, work things out for themselves. That is, I'm a fellow traveler. I'm not a, maybe a bit of a guide, but I'm not, I'm not carving out the road for them, so to speak. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's an important dimension of, of the way I'm thinking about things. Although I also want to say I, community, I think, is also important. I think that learning helps us build certain kinds of bonds with one another. So that's, that's another part of how I think about these things. Thank you again so much uh, for your time. Uh, this was very, very interesting and enlightening as well. Oh, well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. <laughs>